You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. By the end of this podcast, you're going to be talking about bush dogs. You're going to be telling your friends about bush dogs. And you're going to be wanting to know more about bush dogs. What can they teach us? How they hunt, how they communicate. I mean, how do they do it? And 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 they're, this is, this. I think I read, it was the smallest carnivore that's a pack animal. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. <laughs> Where do we even start with this one? Okay. I didn't even know bush dogs existed until you brought them up. How in the heck did you even know they existed? Oh my goodness, Chris. Well, I cannot tell a lie. I just learned about bush dogs myself uh, a few months back, and I couldn't believe that I've never had heard of, let alone seen, this darling bear, wolverine, dog, <laughs> dash hound, <laughs> otter. <laughs> Tasmanian devil looking. Tasmanian yeah. devil, yeah. corgi, uh, yeah. Scottish terrier, bear. Yeah. I think I already mentioned Jack bear Russell, a few times. Yeah. Jack, Jack Russell, yeah. Jack Russell's size, yeah. But Chris, honestly, most people, including us who do a podcast about animals, mm-hmm. have never heard of the bush dog, Yeah, let alone seen one. And I've never seen one either. Now it's on my bucket list because they are um, housed under human care at a few different zoos. But we're going to change that today. And that is why I am here. Because trust me, by the end of this podcast, you're going to be talking about bush dogs. You're going to be telling your friends about bush dogs. And you're going to be wanting to know more about bush dogs, about their behavior, mm-hmm. what they do, videos. And there are a few nice videos on YouTube that I was able to find. But truth be told, there's not a ton of information on them. And that's what I'm here to change today. We need to get the excitement about bush dogs going. The bush dog is a super charismatic species, and there are a lot of fun behaviors we're going to talk about today. They're a true jungle specialist. They swim. They have web feet. I mean, they're darling. And yeah, I just, uh, it's going to be a fun podcast today. Well, they do call them the ghost dogs because they are so elusive. And scientists actually thought they were extinct. 
when they found fossils, but they've never seen a live specimen. So for a long time, or you know, a couple decades, I think it was, they thought they were extinct. They were an extinct species, and then all of a sudden they started seeing them. So they are very elusive and endangered, like you said. And we've been wanting to get back to to South America. So for our South American listeners, you're probably aware of bush dogs. So uh, you know, forgive us for not knowing about them. But I'm I'm glad we're coming back to your area of the world. Uh, to say hello to to one of your most elusive and and one of the most unknown uh, species. So before we get going, I just want to give a quick shout out to our Patreon listeners, and I want to give a shout out to Montero on Instagram, who reached out to us, gave us a a, a great little message, and uh, from New Mexico, and they're just looking to make a, a change and and do something in conservation. Uh, has had a great little recommendation to do alpacas. So actually, that was one of the species Angie and I were talking about doing. So you can look for that in the future. So thank you for the messages. Just keep them coming, and Angie and I will keep responding as quickly as we can. Absolutely. We love the messages and the feedback. It's super important. And I want to give a big shout out to Kyrie who gave us a great review on iTunes and also sent us an email. It made me and Chris smile so big. It definitely made our day to hear how much Kyrie appreciates our podcast and to hear all the wonderful suggestions of species. And Kyrie made some great recommendations for the puffin and the puma. So we're adding that to our list of species to cover here uh, in the near future. So thank you for your kind words. And and for all of our other listeners, if you could go ahead and uh, subscribe, rate, and review, uh, we'd really appreciate it. All right, let's get talking about the bush dog. And we have to describe this. We, we kind of did in the beginning. I... It's just when you look at this thing, Angie, I can't believe this thing exists. I was like, okay, they look kind of big on the pictures, but when you go and actually look at them, they're not that big. They're just to start no. off, they remind me like the sizes of my my late little beagle Mason, who was the runt of the litter, so she was a very tiny beagle, or Jack Russell Terrier size. They look like Tazzy Devils to an extent, but they have these stubby tails. I mean, but they're cute. They're they're. They're, They're darling. Yeah, that That's yeah. what got me right away was mm-hmm, their mm-hmm. face. I mean, absolutely, Chris. I mean, they, they're they just fun to look at, and they, they are different in their body style because they're small, like you mentioned. I mean, think 10 to 15 pounds or so, but they're stout, and then they kind of have these stubby legs, and their fur is gorgeous. It's shaggier, and it's a red-brown in color with... Uh, on the top and then towards the bottom a lot of the photos I saw they have like they're black in color and so it's just a really beautiful beautiful blend of this red brown orange color to then some some black um, on their belly and then their legs and underneath their chin Uh, they also have a light patch of like cream or white on the underside of their throat Uh, and they're Body style is stout. And so maybe that's mm-hmm. where the that's where kind of like the Corgi or the mm-hmm, Jack Russell mm-hmm, Terrier, mm-hmm, Dash Hound comes to mind. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, they have these like short, thick, stubby legs. Uh, they're low to the ground, right? right? And then, yeah, then they have this like tail that's bushier and even longer fur than probably what's on their body. It looks like a little bit, but it's their head. It's their face that for me just makes me <laughs> fall in love and be very disappointed in myself that I was 
40 something years old before I was loving on a photo and watching videos of bush dogs. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Because they have like a bear face to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The head's wide, but the nose is medium sized and the ears are rounded. They have like a black button nose. And I think that's where people, I saw it side by side next to a Tasmanian devil face. Right. Uh, so I think that's where that comparison comes in. Uh, but also to me with the ears and just the, even, even the muzzle area is, is a little more bear like to yeah. me as well. Short ears. And, yeah. and of course the color, having that rust brown color fur makes, uh, gives it somewhat of a bear appearance. So just darling. I mean, and then their tail doesn't really make sense because it's not like a short tail <laughs> or a long tail. It's a medium tail. And I was trying yeah. to think of a dog with a medium tail. And Chris and I, of course, will put put a photo on our show notes but uh, and link some YouTube videos. But you got to check these guys out. They are super cute and unique. But you got to check out the Bush Dog for yourself um, with a photo or video because I'm not doing them justice. <laughs> no, always. You know, we always keep them in the show notes. and. You know, and the, and the wherever podcasting app you use, usually we, we post a photo. They are just, they're super cute, super stubby. I mean, like Angie said, 24 to 30 inches long, so two and a half feet. And they only stand about 12 inches at the shoulder. So again, this small squat, you know. Low to the d- ground. Low mm-hmm. to the ground. That tail, that tail is about five to six inches long or 12 to 15 centimeters. So that's, I mean, a good size for their length. But it, it's still it not, is. not it's a, a long tail. No, it's not a long, bushy tail like you'd see in foxes or wolves or other canids. Uh, they're just, they are, they are completely, absolutely unique. And that's why I was amazed this week. I was like, what is a bush dog? And then I looked it up and I was like, we're doing bush dogs. I don't care <laughs> whatever else we had. Throw it out the window. We're doing these things because they are so cute and they're endangered uh, because they do live in South America and they're very fragmented. You can find them as far north as Costa Rica, but most of their range is down in uh, the heart of South America. Brazil goes, you know, most of Brazil uh, is the range of the bush dog, Venezuela, Colombia, uh, parts of Ecuador. But then you go Peru, Bolivia, Paraguay, and maybe just a little bit in the very, very northeastern tip of Argentina. Uh, there might be some bush dogs there. But, you know, massive range. Massive. The, massive mm-hmm. range. Lowland forests. But, you know, we, we talked about them being endangered. I mean, they, they think there's only about ten to 15,000 total in the world. So they're very fragmented. And what's going on in the Amazon, which we've covered plenty of times, and we'll talk a little bit uh, here more in a minute, there's a lot going against them right now, I think. I don't know. That's the feeling I got reading up on them. Well, Chris, I think it's important to add as well that uh, part of the bush dog's habitat is typically semi-aquatic. They love to be around water. They dive. They swim. Uh, they're great swimmers with these webbed feet. And we'll talk a little bit more about how they hunt in the water when we get to nutrition, which is just very rare for a canid species. I mean, 
Yes, dog. I mean, our 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 pets. A lot of them have been bred to be more of water dogs and hunting water and things like that. But uh, you don't really see wolves going out to the water and swimming mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. going underwater and diving mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. food. Mm-hmm. So it's just it's just pretty. Uh, I think there's a really unique species, and and they have been able to survive in this huge range and live in the jungles, but then also do well in kind of more grasslands as long as there's some water around. And and it's just incredible to me that the bush dog has been able to survive in these jungles, which that's probably what they were made for being low to the ground and sticking under dense cover. But then they also do wet savannas and, um, and kind of like lowland grassland area. So yeah, they're, they're making it happen and they're, totally evading us humans for the most part. Uh, uh, Even people that live in areas where they're found don't see them. Even for people that live near bush dog habitat, I mean, they still don't see them at all. Uh, They're the ghost dog, right? As you mentioned. Well, and that kind of leads us into to, to why care. First of all, it's a species we don't know a lot about, so it would be nice to know more and not let them go extinct. But They're super darling. Look at yes, a photo. They are. <laughs> but here's a, a canid that isn't at the top of the food chain, say, like a wolf, but it's in there. It's near the top. It's it's an important predator. You know, We'll talk about some of the things they, they prey upon, but you know, rodents, things like that. And we know predators, especially like the wolf studies that we see coming out of Owl Royale or Yellowstone or some of these other areas around the world, when their predators are removed from the ecosystem, prey species just go bonkers and they're changing the environment, you know? So they, they play a key role. I mean, they absolutely do, even though we, we, you know, the niche right now, we, we, we can't exactly pin it but we you know, we can just infer from other carnivores absolutely chris and researchers are still learning more about their behavior but in one research article i was reading they were described as apex predators in a lot of the ecosystems because they don't actually have any natural predators so when you think about that uh their ecosystem role is really really critical as far as the food web or food chain goes as far as if the apex predator isn't around, the cascade just crumbles, right? I mean, there's several species that are affected by that. Uh, and then those several species are affect even more species. And so I think the bush dog's role in the ecosystem is really important. It's just understudied at this point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It is, it is, it is. Now, I wanted to focus back in on the Amazon. That's why I was I was itching to get back here because the data last year when we were covering species there was not good. Uh, some scientists really concerned that if we don't stop the rate of deforestation that's going on in the rainforest because of these important feedback mechanisms and everything, that it's going to topple and we'll lose the Amazon rainforest. It will just become one giant savanna in the central part of South America. Well, Chris, one uh, one statistic that was pretty staggering for me when I was reading one of the Bush Dog articles was that to date, 18.8% of the original forest cover has been lost in Brazilian Amazon Basin. 
researchers are predicting at this rate uh, by 2050, which seems like a long time away, but it's really not. It's not that long at all, a little over 20 years or so. They're estimating 53% reduction of the original cover. Yeah. That's huge. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, 18.8, almost 20% is already a lot when we're thinking about just not only the impact locally on the species that live in in that region, but then of course from like a climate change issue as well, right? Yeah. So, well, it's yeah. just, it, it's what's going on there is is a major 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 concern uh, for environmentalists for us. You know, not only just the uh, the biodiversity there that we can lose. But the effects that will have on the planet. So, you know, as scientists, even though it's not our lane, we can still read the science and go, that's not good. You know, when when the majority of science scientists are saying this isn't good. Now, what I kind of dug down for this podcast was Brazil because 60% of the Amazon lies in Brazil. Now, there's things going on in other countries, Colombia, Peru, uh, name a few that deforestation mining exploitation is is going on it is going on it's not just brazil but brazil is the major focus because so much of the amazon is there and so much of the, the the amazon is being torn down there now brazil did come out and say we're going to stop deforestation in the amazon by 2030 we're going to stop this and reverse it, blah, 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 well, blah. Let's hope so. Well, that's been totally toothless, and and that's not true because the government, the current government there has actually in turn gutted their environmental agencies, enforcement agencies, which has allowed deforestation to accelerate again. So there was a, 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 a paper I read. It was the causes and consequences of Amazon fires and deforestation. Uh, Jake Spring and Gloria Dickey wrote this. Uh, it just came out a couple days ago, and it was it was very interesting that June of this year, 2022, fires in the Amazon reached a near 20 year high. Now we talked about fires before the Amazon or the Amazon fires. We've talked about the Australia fires were really bad. And in some biomes, fires are a natural cycle in forests, like in the Western United States. That's actually normal for the trees and things to to go through those fires. And that's not what we're talking about. Rainforests are not meant to burn like that. They, They have not evolved that way. They are not meant to go through a fire season. What's going on is the farmers are going out and cutting down the trees, letting them dry out, and then burning them off, and then converting that to pastures or crops to feed cattle. And so they're expecting now, today, we're recording this in August of 2022, and September, their driest part of the year, the fires there are are really, really intense. And they've been getting worse every year since 2019. Because the the current government there, like I said, has gutted their agencies. So there's nobody out there saying you can't do this. So people are going out and continuing to bulldoze the Amazon. Even the government is opening up the Amazon for further mining, um, export, exploration, and exploitation. So it's just, it, it, it's really bad. In the year leading into 2021, over 5,000 square miles. And within one year, 
uh, or 13,000 square kilometers of the Amazon were, were cleared. And then just to follow up with the fires in 2020, 2020 there were 103,000 individual fires. That was up 51% uh, before this government took over. And last year, there was over 75,000 fires. So the Amazon's still burning. Well, Kristen, to add to some of the problems, you talked about fire, but interestingly enough, uh, it's estimated that about 10 million hectares of forest in the Amazon basin, uh, Brazilian Amazon basin, are expected to be flooded as a result of construction of hydroelectric electric dams. And this this 10 greater than 10 million hectares represent 2% of the total area of the Brazilian Amazon. So that flooding is not helpful for the vast flora and fauna that live there. And this comes out of an article from um, De Oliveira and colleagues um, asking the question, how rare is rare? Quantifying and assessing the rarity of the bush dog across the Amazon and other biomes. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely affecting them, like no yes. doubt, no doubt, no doubt whatsoever. What is going on in the Amazon has a direct impact on bush dogs. And that's kind of why I went down this rabbit hole. And this affects all of us. So I'm sitting here thinking, I feel helpless. Like I really feel helpless. Like I can't do anything to impact what's going on in that part of the world when we actually can. We can. We have been making change. You know, not just this, this podcast and, and everybody listening, but globally, the younger generation and even people of my age and older are are standing up and saying, no, enough, protect our environment, protect these animals. And there has been a lot of change. We just went through Plastic Free July. There's an example. 70% of the Amazon deforestation going on in Brazil is because of cattle, clearing land for cattle. Angie and I, when we were in Florida, we have many friends from South America that are involved in the cattle industry. Um, so this kind of touches home to me because I have many friends that, that, that work there that went back home to, to help their farmers. And I don't want to say, don't take care of your people, stop doing things that are good for your economy. But this affects all of us. At what point do you say there's enough land cleared just be happy with it and leave it alone. You know, right now it's just accelerating. They're, they're bulldozing more and more and more and more. And until the world stands up and says, stop, they're going to keep doing it because people are making a lot of money. You know, well, not- what about this promise that you mentioned or this like by 2030, which is now it's not, not that far away. It's, it's all bluster. It's all bluster. Okay. It's all bluster. There's no, there's no teeth behind it. They've weakened it. They've, you know, so farmers and ranchers reading this, the different uh, opinion pieces and some of the uh, watchdog groups are all saying that the farmers are emboldened and they're going out and bulldozing more and more and more. And I, I you know, I, I'm not going to go too far down this rabbit hole. I, there, there are some major companies that are exporting Brazilian beef to Europe. Uh, the U.S. is one. Um just this year, I think so far we've we've imported sixty thousand metric tons. China's number one for Brazilian beef. Egypt, Russia, the EU. Um, in the U.S., uh, there's some some companies that have been caught selling Brazilian beef from companies that are linked to deforestation. Um, so you can look those up if you if you're interested. But 
there are stores in the UK and then in the EU that are saying we will not sell your products because they are linked to deforestation. This is going back to palm oil over here in, in my neck of the woods, uh, up in Indonesia and Malaysia. So my advice to you is if you feel a little helpless is, is find out where your food's coming from. Um, you know, if you are concerned about the Amazon, if we hit them in the pocketbooks, if they see people standing up, then the politicians are going to listen and do something. Companies are altering how they handle this. Um, so we're not helpless. We do vote with our dollar and we do it as a collective. Uh, they will change their ways, but I'm just really concerned about the Amazon. So that's why I keep wanting to come back here. So it forces me to, to do the research uh, to, to find this out so we can talk about it. Chris, I agree. It is such a huge problem and it's not even in our neck of the woods necessarily where we can write to our local government or anything like that. But I do agree that we live in such an international world now with global trading. And I, I do think that we can be smart consumers uh, and vote with our dollar and take an extra an extra minute to just see or, or research where the products you're buying from whatever stores you're buying them are coming from. And there's it's pretty easy now with the internet too to, to get that information. Or when we when we did salmon a few weeks ago, one of the uh, one of the pieces of advice for salmon is if you are at a restaurant, mm. same thing for beef. If you mm -hmm. if you eat meat and you want a nice steak at a restaurant or something or a burger, you can ask the chef or the, ask the waiter waitress, "Hey, where where does this beef come from?" And they should be able to answer it for you. And I think the more that we do that, the more not only will stores want to be more transparent with where their products are coming from, but also restaurants as well, right? Uh, so just ask questions. It doesn't take that that much. It doesn't take that much longer. Um, and I know a lot of our vegan and vegetarian friends are so used to asking questions about yeah. products that they that they mm -hmm. buy that they purchase either at a store or at a restaurant. And I, I think for um, for all of us, we could kind of not that you have to be a vegetarian or a vegan or anything like that, but we could take a note of being a little bit more conscious about at least where things are, where food's coming from. Yeah. Yeah. And I just think we just need to, yeah, like vote with our dollar. Like we did with salmon. We said, you know, here's where you can get sustainable salmon. Uh, same thing with beef, buy local and just be aware of, of where your food's coming from. That, that, that's the best. And if you do find something from an international source, like down there in Brazil, where there's a lot of deforestation, say, I'm not going to buy your products. You know, I'm not going to um, go until you can guarantee this is sustainable. Because I care about the Amazon, I care about the Earth, and and if we lose that carbon sink, we're in deep, deep, deep trouble, deep trouble. Like, right, and that's, I mean, that's yeah. the whole carbon, the climate change issue. I mean, yeah. then the whole species. Uh, and when I was reading some of these research articles about the bush dog and trying to figure out how rare they are and what's going on, because habitat loss and habitat fragmentation are the main thing that is um, making their numbers go down. I was learning about other species I didn't even know. For instance, Chris, we have to cover the short-eared dog or the short, yeah. also known as the short-eared zorro, yeah. uh, another uh, small canid species that's endemic, endemic to the Amazon basin. So pretty cool. There's, I mean, and who, there's probably species, of, uh, we, there's definitely species of plant and animals out there that have not even been identified yet. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We're still, you know, every year uh, we, we cover that in a podcast every year. Yeah. We, try to, we try to go through what's been discovered this year. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, down there they have the crab eating fox. Like we're, we're going to get there here as I start evolution. The, the bush dog, again, that's why this does directly affect the bush dog. And, and that's why I bring it up today. Very, very fun species. Their evolution's really interesting. I mean, their orders carnivoria, right? That's 280 species of bears, felids, mustelids, pinnipeds, canids. Families, canidae. So 34 species in there, which is our doggies, our wolves, coyotes, foxes, dingoes. We covered a few podcasts ago and jackals. So all pretty similar for bush dog until you get to the, the genre and it's speothos. So it's the only species completely unique. Um, obviously there's some extinct species that went extinct thousands of years ago, uh, but they're the only ones left. There is three subspecies. So the species name is Speothos venaticus. And then you have, okay, so you have the Panamanian bush dog, the South American bush dog, and then the Southern bush dog. So there are three subspecies. Um, but again, you know, highly fragmented. There are, I don't know which one's more darling, honestly. <laughs> They're all cute. <laughs> I just keep They're looking at photos of them. They're so cute. I know. They are. They are. They are. Now, canids, we've talked about. The myocids, we go back. These are bears, our mustelids. I go back to honey badgers, our pinnipeds. Uh, came out of uh, about 35 million years ago in North America. And this is where the canids evolved, you know, up in uh, Angie's neck of the woods. And they are the canids are one of the more ancient ones uh, before the felids. Like that's when the canids, felids split up um, around there. I know I've talked about that before. Now, the canids left North America across the Bering Strait first about 6 million years ago. And then they went through Eurasia, and then the African uh, painted dogs went down into Africa. It wasn't until the Isthmus of Panama connected North and South America around 3 million years ago when canids started to go south. So that's the, the maned wolf the smaller dog, the crab-eating fox, and the South American fox, canids. Now, I did find a, an interesting paper, The Evolution of South American Endemic Canids. Uh, this came from Perini and others out of uh, Brazil. So good research coming out of there. And it just was looking at you know the evolutionary history of these South American canids, doing a lot of molecular analysis, DNA studies, and they found that the South American canids split from North America around 4 million years ago. Wow. So wow. they're thinking this Isthmus of Panama bridge may not be correct it, it, because it, it, these dogs date a further million years plus. And, or they could have, maybe there were some islands and maybe they swam, you know, to get down into South America um, so they might have been in South America earlier than we thought, or these they could have split and just kind of hung out in Central America until that formed, and then they they went south. And then as they were going south, the opossum was coming north. You know, remember, <laughs> go way back uh, how they got there. And then we know the bush dogs split from the main wolves, which is the other um, major canid in South America, about three million years ago. Now. Uh, very unique species, these South American canids. They're more closely, they're all closely related. 
and then they outgroup out into the other canids, uh, the North American ones, the coyote, the the North American wolf, and, and things like that. It's a close relatives. So that's it for them. Again, we don't have a lot, right? Like we don't have a ton uh, of evidence other than about 3 million years ago. And that's just molecular evidence that, that we can use uh, to figure that out. Well, I just love that when they found fossils, they thought that they were ex- <laughs> I mean, that's incredible, yeah. right? They thought they were extinct. Yeah, because they couldn't, they've, they've never seen a, 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 a live specimen. They're just so elusive. So elusive. And even yeah. now when uh, researchers are studying them, the few that are dedicated their lives to it, it's, I mean, it's still very rare for them to see them not only on camera traps, mm-hmm. but definitely, uh, definitely in, uh, in person or in real life. Yeah. So yeah. crazy. Yeah. 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 Especially when their numbers are declining and, and then just hard to find them. But some of the facts, again, since we don't know a ton about them, I mean, they, they live about 10 years. I think one under human care I saw lived up to 14 years. They're not the fastest, those little stubby legs. They they think they get some bursts of speed that they can run 10 to 12 miles per hour. But like other canids, they assume they, or they've seen that they have good stamina. You know, they can, they can, not the fastest, but they can run for a little while. I still, those little stubby legs, like it's corgis. <laughs> it's just. They're darling. Yeah. Just, yeah. I just, yeah, that's great. Yeah. But speaking of bush dog feet, Chris, mm-hmm. we have to talk about the fact that they have webbed feet. Yeah, like otters. Remember, I saw that. Yeah, otters. Yeah, I mean, just incredible. I mean, they these webbed feet help make them strong swimmers, and by strong swimmers, I mean they're uniquely adapted, not only for life on the forest floor to run around in this dense forest jungle, but then to swim and to dive. And when the bush dog does dive underwater after prey, it can stay submerged for up to 30 seconds. I know, I know. And that might not seem like that long, but I challenge all of my listeners to get on the floor and do a plank and hold that bad boy for 30 seconds Mm. and don't breathe. (laughs) And then 30 seconds begins to seem like, actually, I don't want to challenge anybody not to hold their breath for 30 seconds because I think that's like a really long time for a human. Well, no, I think the world record's like ten minutes, but that's like so okay. crazy. Okay, crazy for me, person. I don't. I definitely couldn't under do it. underwater. I, yeah, minute, maybe minute, minute and a half max. I don't even know if I could do. I don't think I definitely couldn't do thirty seconds right now. No way. Maybe when I was swim. No, mm-mm. but I can do a plank for thirty seconds right now if I had to. Uh, I wouldn't like it. It'd be painful. Um, but that is, I mean, that's pretty. That's a pretty good time amount of time. Let alone swimming and hunting, right? Oh, Chris is looking something up. What okay, you? the world record. I had to mm-hmm. Google this real quick. For holding your breath underwater is twenty four minutes. <laughs> uh, Alex or Alex, he's from Spain. Segura, he held his breath for twenty four minutes. I, I've seen people that do does it. Does not seem healthy. It, the average. In short, a healthy person could hold their breath for three to five minutes. Sorry, I don't mean to bust you. I thirty seconds seems like a lot to me too. <laughs> I don't think I can. I don't want to try right now. I, I mean, know. I'm a little out of shape. Maybe that's the problem. Yeah. But I can plank. I can plank. I could plank a minute if I had to right now. <laughs> well, but yeah, you're, uh, but you I would make need a to breathe point. while I did it. I would need to breathe. Yeah, they're swimming. So when you're here's some physiology. Here you go. Some scientist physiology that Angie loved to explain. When you're swimming, you're burning oxygen with your muscles. So your muscles get oxygen deprived 
And so when you're exercising underwater, you're, you're burning more oxygen quicker. So your lungs are like, breathe, breathe, breathe. So 30 seconds at a full swim underwater, like they are chasing prey is a long time, right? I mean, I still don't think I can hold my breath for 30 <laughs> seconds right now. Should we I... try it? No, we won't try it. <laughs> 30 seconds. No, let's try it. Let's try it right now. All right. Okay, hold on. I got to start my timer. Tell me you when to do the go. super breathe. Okay. <sighs> go. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. <sighs> All right, that was 30. Are you still going? He's still going, folks. Not me. I didn't love that. I did not love that. I did it. So I'm proud of myself. He's still going. <laughs> I'll do 45 <laughs> seconds. Good. Right. You know, it's because yeah. you're bigger. You have bigger lung capacity than me. Should <laughs> I've got we... a lot more muscle to burn. I, I don't how about know. this? I, how, that was how, not, about a, was not how about a plank? I know I could beat you on a plank. <laughs> For you sure. Beat, you beat me a lot of stuff. Don't worry about I it. Know, you, know, you beat me. A, you have three oh, beautiful boys. Yeah. He's like, and, he's uh, like, don't worry. Let's not even try. I don't even no. want to try on camera. <laughs> you used to. Yeah. You're way, you were, you were way more athletic than me back in the day. Uh, okay. Uh, so it's not as bad as I thought, but yeah. I will, we weren't, we weren't moving though either. Exactly. Now go swim or exercise and hold your breath for 30 mm -mm. seconds. Next no, time thank you, son. Mm -mm. Yeah. Next time I'm at the gym, I'll try, but I, I doubt it. Yeah. Yeah. It would burn. It would burn. And then it's just, you know, they're swimming because they're trying to catch prey. And those web feet help them swim, right? Right. And, and that was what was really mind-blowing to me as far as in the Canid family, uh, that they're so comfortable not only swimming, but hunting in the water. And in fact, the bush dogs are so smart, they actually will often push their rodent prey, like agoutis, capybara, pacas, into the water. And push them in deeper pools. So even though the rodents can swim as well too, when they're in these deeper pools, and then and then the uh, bush dog will go after them, and when they're submerged, just 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 nail them. Nail them. Yeah. So yeah. I, it's just yeah, it's just really incredible. And I think it's I, I'm fascinated for anybody who's listened to the podcast for a while. When, whenever we do a canid, especially ones that do a lot of uh, social pack hunting, I it, it's. It just is mind blowing to me yeah. as far as yeah. the coordination, the intelligence, the communication during uh, during a hunt is just it's out of my expertise area. But I'm so fascinated by it because Chris and I study horses and zebras and yeah. rhinos and things like that, herbivores, and uh, they just you know they eat their grass and they and I love watching them either eat grass or browse depending on what species uh, we're actually looking at. But gosh, the social 
the hunting is just incredible. And to find this in the bush dog and the fact that the bush dog hasn't been in my life for 40 some years <laughs> yeah, is just really, really incredible. Uh, I, I want to know more. I want, there was only a few YouTube videos. I, I need to see them hunting more. I need to learn more about them. It's just, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and because they also hunt on land as well too, right? So they're not just, not yeah. just in water, but they hunt on land. Rhea? They're just so versatile. Like Rhea? Like, I, are you kidding me? That's one of the flightless birds, large flightless birds that we need to cover. But yeah, it, just, it goes back to that interview with, with Greg Rasmussen I did uh, way back episode 108. That is one people need to listen to. The audio is awful because he's in the middle of Zimbabwe and we're trying to connect on his iPad and it, it doesn't matter. The audio is still good. It's just not, you know, in studio quality. But you're talk you're right when you're talking about these behaviors how they hunt how they communicate i mean how do they do it and 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 they're this is this i think i read it was the smallest carnivore that's a pack animal right yes yeah yes chris that's why this the bush dog just kept blowing my mind this week like yeah, it's yeah. all like they're the rarest they're the smallest pack hunter you know like oh just so incredible. The only one that swims like this. I mean, it's just, so, and I don't know why I'm doing that voice right now, but at least that <laughs> is probably the YouTube video that I was listening yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it really is incredible. And not only do they hunt small prey uh, and large prey, because I wrote a lot of rodents, but uh, they'll also eat birds and snakes and even insects if they need to. Uh, they will hunt individually especially when they're doing some of the smaller rodents and ground dwelling prey and birds. But then they're very successful hunting in packs. And when they hunt in packs, that's a lot of times when they can take down larger prey, uh, such as rheas or an occasional capybara. There was also a record of them taking down a taper. Yeah, a that's crazy. That's a they're big, big. They're That's big. big. Yeah. They're big prey. Peccaries is another one. I'm, Chris, I'm just so impressed by how versatile the bush dog is mm -hmm. uh, with their hunting skills. And, you know, of course, no wonder they've stuck around this far. And I just feel like it'd be such a tragedy for us to lose them because of de deforestation and urbanization yeah. and just having the forest go away. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because they're survivors, right? Well, they're just they're so elusive, right? Like, how do we study them i mean i know there's some under human care but you know it's it's just it's just they're in such a remote part of the world well it is chris and uh, i mean the bush dog we're still learning a lot about it and there's some older papers from like the 40s 50s 70s um but there's still a ton of holes in uh and their behavior and their ecology in fact a lot of what I was reading was saying, oh, they're diurnal and they're active during the day. But uh, this biologist who I'm following now on Facebook named Dr. Karen DiMatteo um, out of the University of Washington in St. Louis, uh, she's been studying them for most of her career. And she was able to radio collar a few of them. And she found out that they were more nocturnal. So I don't know, maybe it's like a, a subspecies thing. But we're still adding really general, basic knowledge. I mean, almost every species you can type on the computer and find out if they're like nocturnal or diurnal. And this one, it's still like we're, we're still gathering data, which is just crazy to me, right?
But Dr. DiMatteo has several papers published and spends a lot of time just trying to find them, though. (laughs) I think Mm -hmm. that's that's the whole problem is whether it's with camera traps or just sightings in general, uh, it's it's really, really, really tough. And But what we do know, and the research does agree about bush dogs, is they do have dens um, that they will either dig for themselves or dig as a team, which is pretty cool. Uh, and they will make a burrow or den out of like a, a hollow tree trunk. Sometimes they use an armadillo's hole, which they may or may not have, have dined on before they <laughs> utilize it. So they're pretty flexible with how they have their den. But when they're not out hunting, uh, they'll spend their time in their den just kind of hanging out and relaxing. And a lot of times it's underground. So if they are more nocturnal, they're hard to be seen because they're out at nighttime. And then, of course, they're sleeping underground or partially underground um, or hidden very mm-hmm. well from from at least a researcher's point of view uh, in a burrow when they're, you know, when they're not bopping around trying to find food. So it's, yeah, they're down to... To say that they're elusive or the ghost yeah, dog yeah. is uh, is an understatement. Understatement. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, that's understand. for sure. But similar to other canid species, the bush dog is a very social animal, and it lives in groups. Uh, they can be a varying size. I heard like up to sixteen. Uh, one of the articles I was reading said that uh, groups were typically found only in like twos or threes, sometimes four. Uh, they didn't know if it's because the population was declining that badly or if. They're just that fragmented. But the bush dog is a very social species, and their group is going to consist of a breeding male and female. So some call it the alpha. We'll call it the breeding male and female, and then non-breeding subordinates. And then within the group of the bush dogs, um, the alpha or the breeding male and female are going to be the only ones that produce the pups or the offspring. Uh, So we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to repro. Because first, I want to talk about their vocalizations. So similar to most species of canids, the bush dog is really, really vocal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they make a lot of noise. And that's actually some of the ways, too, that researchers are able to study and identify them and know that they're in the area. And their vocalizations have been described as like high-pitched beep sounds, squeaks, grunts, yelps. But Dr. DiMatteo describe them as songs. And I love that. And so she says that they sing and that a lot of times these whines are referred to as like bird calls because they are kind of like beeps or squeaks or something. But to her, it's the animal singing a song. And it's really important for the bush dogs to be this vocal and sing these songs, make these calls, because they're typically in such a dense forest uh, with low visibility, and especially if they're out at nighttime, or even if they're out at dusk and dawn or whatever, it's they need to stick together, especially if they're doing some group hunting. And so these vocalizations are extremely, extremely important for them to locate one another, but then also to communicate about their hunting tactics which once again, just blows my mind and makes me just want to know so much more about the bush dog, but the answers aren't there, unfortunately, yet. (laughs) So all you budding uh, researchers out there, man, this is one of those species that, gosh, I would love somebody to write me a note like five years from now because of your bush dog podcast, I'm now studying them and we know, we know 
all that they have their own language and mm-hmm. that they this is how they hunt and this is why they sing their songs and make these noises uh because the truth of the matter is we just don't know a lot about their vocalizations and how they communicate and their intelligence and all of that i mean they're very successful as far and adaptable at what they do but i need to know more <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah i know i know and of course they have their vocal repertoire but uh, the bush dog also communicates a lot by scent. Um, they'll utilize urine to mark their territories. And a male bush dog will mark his tail territory, like our own Fido pets at home, by lifting and lifting a leg. The female bush dog does it a little bit differently. Did you I, happen to? I come read across- that. Can you explain this? <laughs> is, is, is this like a thing? Like, well, you boys can stand up. I'm going to stand up and and you know pee too so what is it they stand up right like it's crazy yes chris the female bush dog will do a handstand urination stance I, what <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me <laughs> well they'll do this a lot of times to be able to urinate on the trunk of a tree mm-hmm. and it's crazy i did not know this we haven't covered the dole yet have we no, that's one that you've been wanting to cover. I have you... been bothering you about that for a while. Yeah, well, yeah. the dole does this. Okay, okay. So it's it's pretty incredible. Now, I I couldn't find any videos of it, so I I, I should probably fact check this with um, Dr. DiMatteo. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. so, yes, I, I think they do this, and it's just fascinating. Um, it's just a fascinating behavior, and it's probably to spread the, uh, the urine uh, – on the tree trunk in a certain way and uh and just to be very clever ter- I guess. Territory. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so yeah. We, we need to find that so, in some researcher out there needs to get that on video um because it's just incredible right and then on top of that the scent of their urine smells like vinegar i so- know what is up with that <laughs> just that's a good way to find each other i guess and then it probably a lot of it has to do with that or maybe evolutionarily speaking to like mark their territories from um other packs i don't know they're so uh spread out now and fragmented their population i don't know if that's a a problem now but yeah yeah. uh but yeah i mean they're marking their territory and that just might be a way or for a female to to uh let let males know about a reproductive status as well um that's just me Mm -hmm hypothesizing because once again there's no really data to to support that but what researchers do know about bush dog reproduction is it is a little different than a typical canid so usually a a canid species is going to have a specific breeding season and they're usually monoesterous sometimes polyesterous but the bush dog only gives birth typically once a year but it it's aseasonal which means it doesn't really have a season. It can be any time of year. And researchers have looked into this and they've reported that the bush dog um, as basically a tropical canid species does have some degree of reproductive flexibility um, depending on where it's distributed in the tropics. Uh, And they think some of that might have to do with food availability uh, but in the tropics, because there's not like a harsh winter mm-hmm. and they eat rodents, that rodents are around all the time, right? And so theoretically, their food availability should be pretty streamlined throughout the year. 
And when a female bush dog is an estrus, which means she's receptive to the male because her hormones are high in estrogen, um, and she probably has some very vinegar urine yeah, <laughs> at that yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. don't know if she's doing more handstands or not. I would love to know that answer. I would love, 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 love yeah, to know yeah, that yeah, answer. Yeah, yeah. But uh, at any rate, she uh, she's going to be an estrus for about four days and then breed with the um, – the breeding male of the pack and the gestation period for the bush dog is only about 67 days. And the female bush dog will give birth to anywhere from one to six pups. And, uh, they're going to be born of course in a den and they're tiny. Mm -hmm. They're like 130 to 190 grams, very dependent on their mom. And they'll nurse, um, up to two months to five months. So probably depending on maybe food availability and things like that. But what's super fun about the bush dogs is they have a really good canine daddy. Yes. Yes. I did read that. I did read that. I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And so the males are going to bring food to the female in the den and the non-breeding subordinate members of the group will also guard and care for or clean the pups and protect them. So even though they're not, breeding, they have a very important role. And when bush dogs are weaned, they stick around for a while um, in the group to learn how to hunt. And then also probably to maybe be a subordinate to learn how to like care for babies. It's thought eventually they'll leave the pack and go make their own uh, family group or pack unit. Uh, But once again, not a ton is known. And when the bush dogs do leave the pack, uh, they usually reach maturity, sexual maturity. It's going to be about a year for a male and around 300 days for a female. And the average birth interval, it's not quite 365 days. It's about 238 days. But since they are aseasonal, uh, they can repeat this um, every 250 days or so. So real quick, Angie, before we get to conservation, I mean, as far as what preys on them, there's no data, but thinking about their size, I would think, okay, a jaguar might pick one off. Uh, I don't know if they'll run you know, into cougars or maned wolves or, or other larger predators, maybe caimans possible. So, you know, not being a very large carnivore, you know, they could get picked off uh, by other predators. Uh, but overall, conservation-wise, I mean, we talked about it. Ten to fifteen thousand, maybe, is is what most sources are are citing. I mean, they are threatened with extinction. Some critical populations are fragmented, like in the Argentina, that northeastern portion. They figure there's fewer than a hundred there, fewer than a thousand in Bolivia. Uh, in a region in Peru, there's fewer than a thousand uh, in in the uh, Camisia River region, if I'm saying that right. So you do see this fragmentation uh, of the bush dog. So it is good that there's research out there, right? And and some of these other people that you wanted to highlight that are out there learning more to protect them. Well, Chris, I want to give uh, um, a few different uh, shout outs this week. Uh, first, I want to start with Dr. Karen DiMatteo. I don't know. I think I'm saying that right. Um, the researcher that I mentioned out of the University of Washington in St. Louis, her story in research uh, studying the bush dogs for several years is just really inspiring. And in fact, I want to try to get her on the podcast if possible, because 
besides studying these elusive ghost dogs, <laughs> use it by using camera traps and interviewing locals and just trying to get more information out in the world about their behavior and their ecology. Uh, she's also been utilizing um, a canine friend named uh, she well she used to use train now he's retired and she uses DJ and these are dogs that have been trained to sniff out scat I I know train was um, train train was trained to sniff out eleven different species and basically help alert her of where the bear dog and then other species are found in these remote regions. I think a lot of her work is in Argentina. And when the dog alerts her to a scat pile of one of these several species that he's been trained to sniff and recognize, uh, she's able to collect a, a sample and then take it back to the lab and look at the DNA and just learn a lot more about uh, bush dogs and about their territories and where they are living and different individuals. And they can look at disease and genetics and just, I mean, we, we've talked about it before on the podcast, how poop is just an amazing thing. It, mm -hmm, <laughs> it can tell you, tells you a lot, a lot. A lot. Yeah, I, I yeah. love poop. I'm super fascinated by it. I've done a lot of poop collecting um, in my research and um, analyzing hormones and things like that. So anyhow, these dogs uh, have been able to help aid her in her research and the bush dogs being a canid species um, as they travel around more and encroach upon urban areas uh, that um, they can be, unfortunately they can be hurt by domestic dogs because the related, uh, the viruses and parasites and bacteria that domestic dogs can carry can actually kill bush dogs. Mm -hmm. And so if these domestic dogs aren't vaccinated properly and stuff like that, it can be really, really hindering um, on wild dog populations, whatever the species is, uh, is. We have these problems in Africa with wild dogs and um, in Asia as well. So any, at any rate, what's cool is that uh, Dr. DiMatteo is using a dog that's, of course, vaccinated properly, and the canine cousin is being able to help uh, the, uh, the bush dog in learning more about their biology, their ecology, their behavior. And then ultimately, the goal is to find – she's working on a project uh, for a huge corridor, I believe, in um, northern Argentina – to connect different patches of forest to try to help not only the bush dog, but several species in the area uh, to help connect them from one area to the other area um, so they, they don't get these like bottleneck populations. So huge shout out to uh, Dr. Karen DiMatteo. And if anything I'm talking about interests you, you should go follow her on Facebook. Her, uh, her handle is GotScat like got milk, but got scat. And I'm going to try to track her down and see if I can get her on the podcast because I want to learn everything she knows about bush dogs because they're like my new favorite. And also I want to learn a little bit more too about how domestic dogs are helping save species. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's fun. It's always fun to talk to them too. If, if, if we can, you know, the ones out there doing the work and the science. And so uh, definitely try to get her on. And lastly, Chris, I want to give a shout out to Stone Zoo, um, which is in Stoneham, Massachusetts, and it's part of Zoo New England. 
It has a family of bush dogs. Uh, they're on exhibit there where visitors can see all the things that they do. Uh, and the Stones, who also participates in the Species Survival Plan, the SSP, for bush dogs to help uh, conserve them and help them thrive. So I have not been to the Stone Zoo, and we're actually traveling to Boston next week for a wedding. So I briefly asked John if we could go to the zoo before the wedding. <laughs> <laughs> he kind of gave me the stink eye. Uh, so st- stay tuned. So stay tuned to see to see if if I could work my magic. And uh, it's not that he wouldn't want to go to the zoo. Obviously, he's a zoo nerd like me. But uh, I don't know if you know fitting it all in uh but he did say maybe maybe the next day so uh i you just once check again our social I, media and yes yes, yes. Yeah. uh i just am like i'm so close i need to go see them yeah. uh because we just you know I, I need to know more about them and seeing them in person i think will really help solidify for me their cuteness just hand the boys to john say i'll be home in a couple hours see ya <laughs> i will actually john and i should hand the boys to, um uh, to our the relatives all of our all the yeah. relatives yes and say we'll be back in a couple of days yeah 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 yeah. <laughs> well yeah you got to see him if you can and you know if you're interested in canids like we are it, i got the list of all the episodes we've done so far of them uh episode 243 was dingo 221 was coyote 197 Arctic Fox. 157. I keep forgetting about this episode. It, it was hot for a while because they are real raccoon dogs. Oh, that's a fun one. Man. Oh, yeah. It's another obscure one. I was like, there's no way these things are real. And they are. <laughs> They're amazing. Uh, Gray Wolves, 109. Fennec Fox, 106. African Painted Dogs, 91. Red Wolves, 28. So... We still got Sounds- about 30-something more. I was going to gonna go. say, a, a, lot more, a lot more to go, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're mm-hmm. so fun, and yeah. I just love learning about their hunting behavior, their social mm-hmm. behavior. And, yeah. and yeah, I mean, the bush dog is really underrated. I bet there's so much more that we could discover if we were, had the tools or the camera traps to, to actually to uh, peek in on this elusive creature and what it does. Uh, yeah. So cool. Well, if you made it this far with us, I just a quick favor to ask, send this podcast to a friend and say, you got to hear about these bush dogs. Just please. <laughs> if we all yes. do that, our audience is going to keep expanding and we can bring well, up these it, important issues. Yeah, exactly. Bring, yeah. Bring them up or share a video on social media. Cause they're, like I said, there are a few mm-hmm. YouTube videos from national yeah. geographic and another group. I can't remember the name, but yeah, I mean, let's get people talking about bush dogs. I feel like they're like the most underrated, unknown um, uh, canid. But that's actually not true because uh, I, when I was reading these articles, that's when I was looking up more about the um, the short eared dog oh, or yeah. the short eared Zorro. Yeah, super cool. What? So <laughs> yeah, here we go. We've got our work yeah, cut out for us, yeah. Chris. A lot yeah, to cover, go. and we got to make some of these lesser known species well known and well loved and saved, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. That's the whole goal. Well, thank you so much for listening. You know, thank you for supporting us. Keep those comments going. Uh, Stay tuned. We've got some good interviews in the works. And always, as always, we've got a good list of animals to come. So take care. Thank you, everyone. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.